AI has the potential to make you rich beyond your wildest dreams or to kill you and every other person you know in an instant. That is, if you believe the current ongoing global debate about this groundbreaking technology. In my view, it's beyond doubt that we stand at a pivotal moment in human history with regards to AI. The debates pitting existential risk against exponential opportunity and those advocating for more open source ideals against more closed models and tighter regulation will have a massive impact on the potential of our species in the future. So to learn more about this ongoing conversation, I spoke to somebody who is operating right at the forefront of the open source technology world. Joseph Jacks, or JJ, is a founder and general partner at OSS Capital, which is a VC firm dedicated to investing in what they describe as commercial open source companies. As you'll hear, he's very bright, very articulate, and has a very strong belief that the open source world generally, or the open weights world, as he calls it with regards to AI, holds great promise. He also warns very strongly about over-regulation in the AI world. So I really, really enjoyed this conversation, um, and I hope you do too. So here, without further delay, is Joseph Jacks. I am here with JJ, who is founder and general partner at OSS Capital, the world's first venture capital firm dedicated to backing leading COS, that's commercial open source startup founders. JJ, thanks so much for joining me. Um, so first of all, I would love to get a brief intro to you, your background, and uh, tell me all about OSS Capital. Sure. Thank you for the time, Tom. I started OSS Capital in 2018, five years ago, and we focus on investing in open source startups. Open source startups are uh, also known as COS startups. This is a, an acronym that we coined. Uh, COS stands for Commercial Open Source Software, basically uh, similar to SaaS. It's a sort of a type of company, not a type of open source. And uh, basically, we think that open source companies are better for the world, they're more exciting. Um, products and services where the consumer can trust and not uh, not just uh, trust the company, but actually trust the technology because they can verify that the technology is doing what it says it does um, by virtue of being open source. And we think this creates more capital efficient companies, um, companies that are just better for the world in general. So we've been investing in lots of infrastructure companies, application companies, many different uh, parts of the software stack. Uh, my background prior to that was I started a couple of these open source companies. I was associated with the Kubernetes community pretty early on. Kubernetes is like a, a distributed systems project that uh, Google released in 2014. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much my background. I'm a pretty well-known uh, evangelist for open source and open source company building in general. Awesome. Um, so I would love to dig a bit deeper into this idea of commercial open source, how it works, and then how what you're doing differs from traditional VC. So you say it's, it's, it's refers to companies, not open source, but like, how does that relationship work exactly? Sure. So the most common analog I would point to would be Red Hat. Um, Red Hat was created in the uh, early 90s and was a business built around 
is a business built around this uh, open source technology that a lot of people know of called Linux. And Linux is an operating system for uh, basically running software on servers. Uh, it can also run on the, des the desktop, but Linux basically powers pretty much all the servers on the internet uh, that uh, basically give us our data, give us our applications and our consumer experiences and um, everything that we, we, we click on and touch pretty much runs on a Linux server. So Red Hat was created to basically build products and services around Linux and they um, you know, eventually became a very valuable business. And so what we've seen in the last five or 10 years is that there's sort of two types of technology companies uh, that sort of choose um, uh, a sort of design pattern that the company is based on. Um, and this is totally distinct from web one, web two, web three, crypto, AI, right? It transcends all of those different categories or hype cycles or waves, if you will. And so the two types of companies are uh, uh, open core companies versus closed core companies. Red Hat is this open core company. Their core is Linux. Uh, Microsoft is a closed core company. Their core is, you know, basically Office and all the, you know, Windows Server and all the core um, Microsoft products. Microsoft has gradually been becoming and transforming themselves into an open source company. But typically what we see at the earliest stages is a startup founder decides Am I going to start with the open source project and use that as the basis for creating my company? Or am I going to start with an idea and I'm going to write some proprietary software code and offer it up as a service and just charge people to use the software like SaaS, uh, which is what we call closed core versus open core. And so the reason OSS Capital was created is in venture capital, you typically have people who are generalist investors who don't care or have much interest in applying rigor or domain focus in any one particular area or type of company. They're just more interested in like finding the next great founder or investing in any category that could come along. And what we find interesting with OSIS Capital is applying uh, an intense amount of focus on this particular type of company and nothing else. Uh, but what it's also given us is a lot of freedom and flexibility because commercial open source really transcends and sort of cuts through, like I was saying, all of these categories. And so when AI came along, obviously, you know, it's been around for many decades, but it's been much more recognized as a sort of critical category to make a decision around in the last year in particular. Uh, we have open source AI versus closed source AI. In Web3, when the crypto movement came along, uh, there, was a lot, there was a lot of uh, discussion and pretty clear uh, delineation around uh, Web3 companies that were really truly open versus Web3 companies that were a lot more closed. Um, and so this distinction really, like I was saying, transcends any of the sort of hype cycles that we've seen uh, come up in the industry over, over the last, um, you know, maybe decade or so. And for us, it's very clarifying um, because the, the, the bit for the, the reason that open source is a really fundamental thing for the entire technology industry, it's the basis for how all digital technology innovation actually works. Um, you know, all the biggest technology companies would not exist without the pre-existence of open source um, uh, permissiveness and uh, really fundamentally open source projects that came before them, right? And so okay. that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's a big part of our, of our thesis. But how and why we invest doesn't quite differ too much from a traditional VC uh, um, because we do invest in companies that we believe can be worth many billions of dollars each. Uh, over time. Uh, we're, we're wrong about that in a lot of instances, uh, as are all VCs, but that's, that's the criteria that we, that we apply is like, 
if things go really well and are executed, can could this company become really valuable? Um, the other thing that's very similar to VC in general is uh, we purchase minority equity stakes in companies in exchange for some small handful of millions of dollars. And those um, equity stakes, if the companies actually do end up becoming valuable, could convert $5 million into you know, $500 million or $5 billion if the companies end up um, you know, becoming uh, uh, really successful. So, I mean, presumably the risk with costs is um, that it's entirely transparent. So it's, you know, there's, is it more difficult to kind of have a, have a moat uh, and to kind of, you know, protect your position in the market if you're entirely open source? Or yeah, am so I kind the, of reading that wrong? Uh, no, I think you're, I think you're asking uh, the right question. Um, there are some fundamentally different aspects to cost companies that are, quite counterintuitive to reason through on first sort of like glance or, or you know, first encountering this, this approach. Um, the first one is what does defensibility mean? How do you protect your IP? How do you defend your thing? You know, what is the moat? And what, 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 I, what I think commercial open source startups do is they shine a light on, uh, on sort of fundamental reality, which is that the only moat that really actually matters in business uh, whether or not you're open or closed, um, is your pace of innovation. So how fast you're delivering innovative things to your customers or your users, and then, uh, how you regulate that pace of innovation relative to what you're charging money for. Right. And so there's what you give away and what the customer just kind of gets, uh, for free. And then what, uh, 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 you actually, uh, you know, charge the customer to access. And in the digital world, uh, with digital companies, purely digital companies with, um, uh, I'll leave out hardware companies because things are a little bit different there when you talk about the sure. world, world of atoms, as opposed to the world of bits. So we're just staying in the world of bits here. Sure. Um, the world of bits, pretty much every product out there has a free tier, a freemium tier or something that you, you get a lot of value before you pay any money. And so there's these two fundamental sort of differentials. One is the rate of improvement and the rate of innovation of the core technology. And then the other is um, your propensity and ability to retain and continue to collect revenue from paying customers, right? And being able to balance those two things um, is really fundamental. And so with open source companies, um, the question of moat and differentiation kind of gets flipped on its head and says, um, well, there is no IP moat at a fundamental level. And there, are, there is also no sort of, you know, in, in a lot of cases, like a data network effect moat with the core technology anyway. And so the fundamental thing is really how fast and how continuous can you increase the rate of improvement of your core technology? Um, yeah. And then balance that with, as you build products and services enabled by that core technology, uh, given that all of your products and services are enabled by this open technology, uh, your pressure for commoditization and also giving away all the things that you charge money for is extremely high, right? Because you have this natural tension of your open source community uh, inevitably might actually want the same things that your customer community 
which is companies that pay you money for things, not just use your software, might also want. And it comes into great tension. So my belief is that I don't think moats exist. I, I think moats are kind of a figment of, you know, of, of the imagination of uh, the business community and econo economics and, and founders and so on. And uh, at the end of the day, the only moat that actually truly fundamentally matters is how, how fast and how continuous is your rate of innovation and your rate of improvement over a long sustained period of time. The moment you start to see a decay rate in your rate of innovation is the moment that many companies and most companies, once they start to have large user bases, um, try to become more extractive and squeeze out all of the profits from those communities. That's a very common pattern. Um, there's economists and many books written about this. One example uh, would be The Innovator's Dilemma, Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. There's plenty of other examples in, in, in sort of um, history that point to this type of phenomenon. So with open source companies, because the core technology is open source, it really magnifies the importance of maintaining a sustained, very high rate of innovation over a long period of time. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I guess it probably, because you're building these communities, allows you to in, in, innovate and iterate faster because you've got more people with access to identify problems or identify opportunities. Yes, it can. At a it can. faster rate. Yes, it can. It, it, but communities tend to not be innovative in the diffusive sense. Um, innovation tends to come from small groups of people, so there's yeah. also there's also a trade-off there. But yeah, to your point, you, you you have more transparency in terms of the feedback mechanisms for how your communities could be um, benefiting from the software or benefiting from the product and giving you feedback and um, discovering things that otherwise would be very difficult or cost prohibitive to discover. Cool. Okay. Well, look, I know um, our, uh, we, we, we don't have loads of time, so I want to move on to AI and specifically open source AI. So I'll start with open AI. feels like a, a kind of natural place to start. I don't know whether you've got any views on, I mean, they've obviously very publicly started out being very open and are, some would say, increasingly less so over time. Um, have you got any, have you got a take on, on that kind of, that switch and that um, that relationship with Microsoft? Yeah, I mean, I think that Sam Altman rug pulled pretty much the entire technology community and Elon as a co-founder uh, has explicitly said that as well. And you know, I've, I've been saying that this is like, you know, pretty obvious, um, toxic um, 180 uh, change behavior from the original mandate. The justification and defense for those actions um, is uh, nonsensical, fear-mongering existentialism um, grounded in nothing remotely approximating rationality, in my opinion. <laughs> it, but it, but it, but is purely driven by, you know, um, profit motives and uh, largely a push towards regulatory capture. So that, I guess after having spent maybe a few months thinking about it, that would probably be the most crisp and concise way I can describe things. Um, yeah, OpenAI open was literally named by Elon uh, to refer to open source AI. It was literally nonprofit, everything being open source uh, for the good of humanity. And um, I feel like the decision that Sam made to, to, to change the corporate structure and raise a huge amount of capital uh, was both ego 
uh, wanting to become uh, godlike with power and have influence over society, um, and also um, very capitalistic uh, uh, and um, you know sort of profit seeking, which there's nothing wrong with. But um, when you when you go from um, a fully open model to uh, literally the complete inverse of that uh, in every possible way. Um, right. There's like some spectrum that you can apply there that maybe not might, might, might not be uh, so deeply toxic. And there's plenty of other examples we can talk about if we had long, more time, which we don't. Um, uh, but that's my general kind of take on it. And um, uh, independent of the fear mongering and the, um, you know, sort of like irrational references to um, AI likely being, um, uh, you know, the, the, the highest form of risk for humans uh, facing an existential dilemma over the coming years. Um, uh, I, I think the, the predominant factors driving the, the changes that OpenAI made are, um, are, profit, are profit-seeking. And um, the, the primary lever, uh, they're very clearly pushing very hard to... Um, uh, switch in, in, in favor uh, of that agenda is, is what's called regulatory capture, where you go to the governments uh, on a global basis, not just the United States and Congress and, and senators and so on, but um, global governments, every, every government uh, yeah. leader, and you convince them that your argument is correct, meaning you uh, have sufficient and compelling information to make the case that if this technology were made available to everyone without intensive regulation, uh, it would it would mean um, uh, unacceptable risks uh, that could um, cause existential issues for humanity. And so that's a that's a pretty convincing argument if you believe the premise, which the the premise is all entire completely entirely flawed. Um, and I guess we could talk about that. But if you yeah. believe the premise, regulatory capture actually will in fact work. And I think what most people don't quite, the chess moves here aren't five levels deep. They're sort of two or three levels deep. They're really not that complicated. Um, if the regulatory capture agenda does in fact work, which historically it has in many cases in the last 50 years or 60, 70 years of regulatory capture um, uh, case studies, um, what will happen is there will be three or four, maybe five um, very heavily funded AI companies that will be allowed at a national level to pursue scaling and distribution of very powerful models. And um, the implications of that are indistinguishable from, you know, uh, you know, the, the Catholic church trying to squelch out Christianity or, you know, um, things that um, would have, um, uh, you know, destroy the propagation of um, knowledge when, when the Gutenberg press was just starting to get, you know, built. And like, there's so many other examples of really critical, pivotal moments in his, in the history of humanity that um, we can sort of like look back on where this is actually a much bigger kind of potential outcome. The more recent one that I, I start to refer to more often as well as many other people kind of uh, uh, with the same views as mine um, uh, is the overregulation of nuclear energy, uh, going back, uh, to the second world war and sort of all yeah. the implications of that geopolitically and, um, philosophically going and saying, you know, okay, this is going to be you know, catastrophic. And so in fact, in reality, it ended up being, um, scientifically and, you know, empirically based on the last several decades, uh, by far the safest and most efficient form of, of clean and safe energy, 
but because of overregulation and fear mongering, uh, held back humanity and making progress in that area by many decades. So what I tweet blurted out last night, which is kind of another one of my, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity to clarify some of these thoughts because sometimes it's hard when you're kind of running from one thing to the next every day. Especially on Twitter. Uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah, and especially if you're a VC invested in a bunch of companies where you're, you're, you're sort of pulling your hair out every day. Um, <laughs> uh, the overregulation of nuclear um, held humanity back by several decades. The overregulation of AI, uh, I believe, can hold humanity back by many centuries. And so the, the regulatory capture agenda, I think, is probably one of the top two or three most important um, pivotal moments where uh, people who really are in the, 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 the sort of the right mental state need to be campaigning far more aggressively than those who are not. Um, and I, I'm actually quite encouraged with a lot of the support of people kind of like pointing out that this is a, a catastrophically harmful thing to be pushing for, um, not, not just myself. Wow. I mean, it's, it's such, I mean, you, it, to use your words, it's such a pivotal moment, isn't it, for, for humanity where we are right now. And I think for lots of people that there are compelling arguments on both sides like i mean so if, if we you know get into the the doomerism accelerationism thing the, you know the, the doomerists do feel like they make a good logical case often i think like what's your so the the kind of the existential risk ai doomer take um have you engaged with it much and if so uh, you know how dismissive are you of that that point of view I will first refer to a quote um, by John Danforth, who is an economist. Uh, uh, and uh, this is the um, uh, essence of why we're seeing so much magnification of the uh, negative decel anti-AI uh, voices out there. So, um, I actually don't know a ton about John Danforth, but I just know he's an economist. And so the, the quote is, the loudest voices we hear are those who advocate conflict and divisiveness. And I think that's just like a fundamental truth. Like when you have um, something yeah. that is very polarizing, uh, the side of the argument that is more in favor of just tearing people apart and kind of creating chaos will likely be the voices that are the loudest, as opposed to the ones that who tend to be uh, on, on, on the right side of the spectrum or correct, uh, uh, factual side of the spectrum, if we will, um, uh, you know, m more, um, pragmatic sounding. And so, um, it is kind of interesting, the backdrop of that and EAC, which you sort of asked about EAC is not quite soft and, uh, uh, you know, the opposite of divisive, um, which is unifying, uh, it is, you know, also somewhat polarizing. But the reason I sort of put that on my Twitter profile and was like, sort of like, you know, this is something that I really represent is, um, I think if you went out and surveyed, you know, a great deal, mass uh, fraction of the tech industry, uh, they would, in understanding what this EAC thing really stands for, um, very uh, concretely place themselves in that philosophical uh, camp. Because 
uh, fundamentally, EAC is, a, a, you know, it, it stands for effective accelerationism, which is we want to accelerate progress and we want to encourage as much forward motion um, uh, advancement in any area that uh, technology uh, can uh, enable more abundance and productivity and leverage for humanity. And AI is a, te is a technology. We've invented this. Um, and I think that's, that's really... Uh, the fundamental argument is EAC stands for optimism and it stands for giving humans agency and control and uh, it stands for, you know, democratizing access to any new fundamental technology that we discover as humans. Um, and so I, I think ultimately that's what will likely happen. But the, 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 the reason this sort of like badge came about is... Um, somewhat on the backdrop of the other effective philosophical acronym, which is effective altruism. And EA is, is its own, I think, fairly nuanced and fractal philosophy because you've got uh, people who are still very much staunchly EA, at least maybe definitionally distinct from prior EAs, uh, like, for example, um, the founder of uh, 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 of Asana, um, blanking on his oh, name, well, well, Dustin Moskovitz, um, and then you've got other EAs like Sam Bankman-Fried, who defrauded people out of tens of billions of dollars. And so, um, unfortunately, given that precedence of EA itself not actually having a strong definitional grounding or consensus, uh, EAC, in building on that in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, inversely also somewhat suffers from some of those sort of like definitional cracks, I guess. And that, um, uh, isn't crazy helpful, but anyways, I guess the reason I jumped into this was it's just an easy way to go and say, look, um, I'm not an anti-AI, you know, doomerist, decellist, and it's just a cool, fun acronym. Frankly, my view is it's going to go away in the next six months and it's, it's going to be viewed as just kind of like a, inconsequential and unnecessary badge because it'll just, you know, likely propagate into just kind of the default view, like, wait, yeah, shouldn't all human knowledge be accessible or shouldn't all scientific knowledge be accessible or, you know, shouldn't uh, the knowledge of how computers work be accessible? Um, I think these things are just going to be, in retrospect, very obvious and accepted. And we won't need to be creating fiefdoms and camps and divisive badges and, uh, you know, political narratives to justify uh, very obviously correct points of view. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned control and, and agency. I guess, I guess their fear would be that humanity would lose control and agency because there would be a, an intelligence that's smarter than us that wants something different than, than we do. I mean, what would your response be to, to, to those kinds of arguments? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's kind of living in a dream state. I think that um, while perceptively that could happen, uh, like, for example, when one takes large doses of a psychedelic and you have disassociative uh, phenomena that happen in your brain, um, uh, I, I, I don't think that, the, we, that we can stretch and generalize those arguments to human society uh, and say that we will now um, uh, all of a sudden... Uh, somehow in a unifying, at a multi-billion human scale sense, 
start to lose control of our agency. I think that these are absolutely um, insane conclusions to reach. Um, and, uh, you know, doing some really creative, innovative things requires some degree of insanity uh, and uh, <laughs> suspension of disbelief. And so I'm not actually poo-pooing insanity too much there. Um, but I, I would say that these arguments, I think, are really are, are really kind of like hilarious and, and, and childish in a lot of ways. And, and again, you have to really like think and assess what interests do they serve in terms of why and how they are constructed and where they are applied. Um, I think it's really, I think it's really important. Um, a wide swath of the non-economic, so just as one example, um, from the philosophical lens, a wide swath of the, a wide swath or maybe all of, rather, the non-economically incentivized or motivated people who are heavily in the decel, you know, anti-AGI effectively camp are communists or socialists. Okay. So, so there's like a, a philosophical connection for you, right? That, that could be somewhat enlightening, right? If you think about the philosophical groundings. Sure. Um, uh, so the only reason I bring that up is you, you have um, a lot of people who are going and saying, well, wait, like the only people who are really in that camp, just they want to do that because there's like a lot of money to be made and they want to create the next, you know, $5 trillion company. That, that's, that's also true, but they are not socialists and communists, right? They want to be worth a lot of money. And so that, you know, at, at, at the expense of others or, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, 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 in the process of creating huge uh, additional wealth inequality. So, like, I think that's, that's something I would also um, point out as, 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 as far as where the arguments are directed and how they're constructed. Cool. Well, look, we're running very closely up against time. Um, so I've only got a couple more minutes of your time. Um, I do very quickly just want to ask you about open source AI more generally. Um, where do you think it's at? How far behind is the open source community running? Um, and like, what are, you, what are you excited about in the open source AI world at the moment? I'll talk about two things and then we can wrap. Um, one is what's called open weights. Um, and the other, which is new algorithmic approaches and new models for what, you know, could come next in, in, uh, in the advancements of, of, these, uh, of these AI models. Um, so the first thing, I uh, tweeted about this a bit ago in May, actually, and um, I said there's no such thing as open source AI. I guess I'll just read this tweet. The reason for that is that open source was invented by a human. Uh, uh, it was formerly called free software, but it was invented by this guy named Richard Stallman at MIT in the 80s, uh, explicitly for software source code. And uh, AI, aka neural networks, which is what AI really is, it's neural networks. Uh, neural networks are not software source code. They are unreadable by humans, and they're also not debuggable. Furthermore, the rights of open source also do not translate over to neural networks in any congruent manner. So why is this important to point out? It's, it's important because we're facing the precipice of government regulation, like I was saying. So if open, quote unquote, open AI succeeds at regulating intelligence, uh, the current open source licenses like MIT and Apache uh, that are sloppily uh, under no better grounds applied to neural networks um, uh, Will not, they will not stand on defensible legal grounds, basically. So what I propose is we need to standardize as an industry on 
a new definition, which the Open Source Initiative, uh, I think, paid attention to and has started to incorporate a movement and a sort of uh, consortium of people to kind of talk about this. Uh, my partner, Heather, and I just proposed a definition. So we, we think uh, consortiums and groups of people that like to discuss things tend to waste a lot of time. So we were just like, look, here's our proposed definition. It's a pretty straightforward definition. So we call it open weights. Uh, uh, as opposed to open source, because neural networks do not have source code. You have the definition of the um, of the model you want to train, but after you've trained the model and put it out there, the weights themselves and the parameters do not encode anything that a human can understand or, or is debuggable. So um, what we put out there is a framework towards a definition uh, of open weights, and we, we think that it's actually more useful and more technically accurate to say open weights AI as opposed to open source AI. Okay. The, 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 the ship may have left the harbor or the uh, train had left the station, whatever metaphor you want to use at this point, because there's just so much, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, terminology washing uh, that uh, so many people say open source AI now. It's just it's going to be hard to change the sort of narrative. But there's the uh, link to the post on open weights. The second thing I'll say is. Pretty much all of the language model uh, advancements we've seen and tools, services, products, companies um, are based on the transformer architecture that uh, was created at Google Brain in 2017 by a bunch of Google Brain people. Almost all of which have left and started companies to commercialize this transformer architecture. Um, OpenAI hired one of those people and has invested all of their energy in scaling their models in language around the transformer. I personally believe the transformer is an extremely inefficient, com computationally inefficient architecture. Uh, it's okay. extremely um, uh, difficult to control in terms of uh, quality and accuracy, um, uh, at least in terms of you know how, how you um, how you want to guide and, and tune a model. And a bunch of other uh, aspects that um, other researchers, much smarter than I am, can can articulate better. And so, what I believe will happen is there are likely to be many replacements and evolutions of models that um, maybe take some aspects of the transformer or completely disregard all of them, and come up with much more compute efficient and more effective ways at producing uh, language. Um, uh, capabilities and generative capabilities in many domains. Um, and I'm really excited about that. I've invested in a couple of things there, but uh, I think in general, the industry will likely head in that direction. And I, th I think we're, we're likely to see a huge change in the way hardware is utilized. Um, but, but currently the industry is very heavily invested in this, you know, transformer is the final, you know, destination yeah. Um, and, you know, NVIDIA is designing their chips heavily around it. Um, pretty much every, every company is just trying to scale transformers. So I, I think that, that the um, future year or two are going to be really interesting to see what comes out as far as uh, transformer alternatives. Awesome. Well, look, um, uh, we, are, we have run over time, so I will thank you very much um, for being so generous with your time. Um, it's been incredibly interesting. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for joining me. Likewise, thank you so much for having me, Tom.